And he said, what kind of job do you want? And I said, I don't uh, think I'll probably ever work in this field. I just really would like to study this field. And he said, that's unusual. Okay, you're in. I would also wipe away the idea that people should do things for money. We all need resources to live. And those will come when you are fearless and following your passion. When someone you know and trust as your mentor expects good things or great things, you tend to live up to it. You know, you fly in and it's bombed out and the poverty is shocking and it, it, they weren't in central Indiana anymore. Yeah. And then we, we very intentionally wanted that for them. And the more and more in life I'm, I'm more into this, like what can you do that's under your power? And where are you wasting maybe some time and energy on things you can't control? But that provided me an unforeseen opportunity to start the first online teacher prep program in special ed and literacy. And we took that all the way up. We were the first online program to be nationally accredited. Honestly, honestly, very intentionally said, oh, I'm going to say yes for five years and see what happens. Running for elected office is an extension of what you're doing anyway in terms of public service. It's just another form of it and that it can be what you want to make it. I don't shy away from that word politician because that just means someone of the people. Do what you do and take the actions you think are right, even if they're really small. And it's quite remarkable that sometimes people are paying attention. Continuing to build, because I think Fort Collins is like this, a really kind community where we care about each other, where we're connected in our neighborhoods and we're connected by bike paths, smart streets, through jobs and employment. So that sense of place, community and connectedness. Welcome to The Passion Project. In the first half of 2021, I sat down with Jenny Arndt in her home just after she was elected mayor of Fort Collins to ask her about her life and her passions. A Fort Collins native, Jenny always had a passion for education and studying. She has spent a lot of time in the classroom and has earned several degrees, including a bachelor's in sociology, two masters in both geography and special education, and a PhD in language and literacy. In between all her years in school, her and her husband traveled the world and spent time with the Peace Corps in Morocco, raising a family in Denmark, and spent six years working in one of the poorest countries in the world, Mozambique. After all her education and travels, her and her family landed back in her home of Fort Collins, Colorado, where she later ran as a state representative and spent three plus terms in the General Assembly, which led her to being elected as mayor. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenny Arndt. Thank you for being on, Jenny. Sure. You're welcome. <laughs> it's nice to sit down with you. It's great. Thank you. But I know that you are born and raised in Fort Collins, and so I guess let's just start with that. Well, technically, I was born in Boulder. Born in Boulder. My parents moved me here when I was three weeks old in 1964. Um, but I always say that because I know someone will fact check me. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you grow up like in Fort Collins for all of your like schooling and everything? Yeah, I went to Moore School, Blevins, Pooter. And so I graduated in 82. And then I went to Colorado College. So I left Fort Collins in 1982. And I basically didn't move back permanently till 2008. So that was a long yeah, so that's stint a, in there. But I guess like sticking to really quickly life growing up, um, brothers, sisters, 
Yep, I'm the youngest of four. Youngest of four. And uh, my dad was a local businessman, and my mom also later in life got into business herself. And uh, but mostly, she's known as being a local athlete runner, and um, kind of traditional stay-at-home mom at first, and then you know writer, and um, yeah. So what is what is your viewpoint on growing up as the youngest sibling? It's the best spot. I I agree. <laughs> Well, it was great. I mean, I just, I feel like such a Pollyanna, but I remember walking home from more school. We lived just around the corner and, you know, before leash laws, our dog would just sit on the porch and he'd see me come around the corner. His name was Rupert and he'd run to the end of the block and get me. And uh, I just remember thinking, I think I'm the happiest kid in the world. I just always had a happy gene. I've always been lucky with my health and my family's health. When we were little, we could run home and have lunch at home. My mom would have a little half sandwich there for us, and we had a trampoline, and we could jump on the trampoline <laughs> for a, a few minutes and go back to school with my brothers and sister. And I always just honestly felt like the luckiest, and I still do feel like the luckiest person in the world. I love to hear that. I feel similar that I have that happy gene, and yeah. I'm very thankful that I, I don't know what it was that kind of gave me it, but yeah. You know, I did hear on the radio once I was in bed listening to NPR and they said that they there is a gene that does produce more of the whatever it is. And I woke up and I said, oh, that's what I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's wrong with me. So then as far as your parents go really quickly, so you, you said your dad was a local businessman. Yep. What did he do? He, well, uh, in 1964, he, they moved up um, after graduate school in Boulder. And he initially was, you know, just a young family, an insurance salesman. And then he quit in 1970 from Galliard and Harvey. And we went to Europe for six months. He quit his job. We rented our house and sold our cars and um, bought a Volkswagen camper in Wiesbaden, in Germany. Wow. And the six of us traveled for six months. We went to 27 countries. How old are you during I, this? I was five turning six. And that was a very formative experience. I kind of thought everybody probably just had parents who took them camping for six months, but I guess, <laughs> I guess not. Quite a, a risk taker. He wrote to all the, um, back then it was called the Iron Curtain, right? Um, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Poland were all behind the Iron Curtain. And he just personally wrote to those governments in English and said, you know, we're a family of six traveling through. Could we come to your country? And they said, sure. So we would have these people meet us at the border. And we went back behind the Iron Curtain, Romania. All of those countries um, were welcoming to us. And I, I guess I just thought that's what you did. You write to the, quote, government and mm -hmm. see if you can come. And then we went through um, all the Mediterranean countries and then all through Scandinavia. And then we came back home. And then my dad didn't work for anyone else again. Just started his own businesses with relative success and hits and misses, I would say. As any entrepreneur, anyone starting their own business. Yep. And so the decision to drop everything, quit the jobs and go to Europe, was that kind of on a whim or was that something that they've always wanted to do? You know, I would, all I can say is my dad was a risk taker. And, and you know, if you look back, you think it was your dad driving the bus, but you realize that, of course, it takes two. So my mom is British by birth. Mm. So um, I think there was just a natural affinity to go to spend a lot more time in Europe. And um, they just did it. I mean, I slept on the floor of that camper for six months. I, That's incredible. You just grow up the way you do and you think it's normal. And then you realize, oh, didn't everyone's parents quit their jobs? And <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. And so then moving forward now a little bit. Um, so you graduated from high school. You went to CC, you said initially, because I know that you have a lot of education. I guess we'll start with CC. Yeah, I loved Colorado College. I just, it was a good fit for me. I, I will say I'm a very social person, so I had to kind of focus a little more on my studies there. And I met my husband there. And then we both wanted to join the Peace Corps. 
And we went to join, and they said, well, are you married? And we said, no. And they said, well, you can't go together unless you're married. And we said, oh, no. You know, we were young graduates, so we had just turned 22. So we waited a couple of years, and we worked for two years, and then we both did a master's degree. So what did you study at CC? I studied sociology. Sociology. Study of people in groups. Did you know what you wanted to study when you were going, or have an idea, like a grand vision of where you wanted to be in 5, 10, 20 years or something? 100% no. So I applied to CU Engineering and Colorado College, thinking, well, I'll either be an engineer, because I was pretty good at math, or I'll do liberal arts. And um, I interviewed at both schools. I got into both of those programs. And then uh, when I went to Colorado College, they said, well, what do you need to make it possible for you to go here? And I said, well, I would probably need it to match the CU tuition. And they said, okay, great. And I said, well, okay. I'll go here then. And um, I had to work and take student loans, and that was fine. Yeah, a lot of kids at CC didn't work, and they'd be like, where do you go every night? And I'm like, I'm a bus girl at Old Chicago at night. But I always like working, right? I, it's, I don't, it's fun. Uh, Staying busy. Yeah. So uh, that was good, good, and I just thought that was an opportunity that I thought I should stretch myself a little bit more. Um, and then I was a social major because really, honestly, looking back on it, I was just natural. It just came so natural to me to try to study how people behave in groups. And then later, when I served at the State House, it was perfect preparation for that. We might get into it later too, but I do think that that's really cool to say something like, I had this experience later in life where looking back, I'm very glad that I, I studied this. And you know, sometimes the things you're good at are the things that come easily. So they come easily for a reason because you might be a little bit predisposed to that. I had a roommate who's now a medical doctor and he took a social class with me and he couldn't believe that I got an A and he got a B. He goes, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I said, why? You think you're smarter than I am? And he goes, I guess I do. And I said, well, maybe you're smarter at some things than I am, but maybe there's other ways to be smart too, right? So sometimes the path of least resistance is there because you may have a natural affinity. So that yep. would be some advice I would give to people in transition. <laughs> I actually love that. Some of the things that come really naturally to me are talking to people, connecting with people. I mean, I loved being in public places just to people watch. And I mean, when you just talked about busing at a restaurant, like I love working in a restaurant sometimes just because getting to work with people, walk around, meet new people all the time. Then I was a waitress for a long time. When uh, my husband and I got married, I said, you know, I'm going to need a prenup agreement. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I just want a couple things. And he's like, what? And I said, well, I want you to promise that no matter what we do in life, how many degrees we get or where we go or whatever we do, that at any time I can drop everything and be a waitress again. He's like, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't really a formal prenup, but it was just sort of a tacit agreement. That is a job. I agree with you, Tate, is active. I like physical movement. Yep. I, I don't like sitting down. I, I love food. I love people. And it just brought it all together. It's just fun to get that wide range of different, all kinds of different people. Just well, the, the other weight aspect. stuff is it's always a fun culture too. But here's something, <laughs> do you want to know something really crazy? Now that I'm mayor, I mean, it is taking up 50 hours plus a week, but I know a lot of restaurants need people to work in them. And I thought, would that be completely crazy if I applied to be a waitress just two, three days a week? I honestly has crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Like, hey, I'm your mayor. What would you like for an omelet? You want cheese? <laughs> I would be, I, I honestly have thought about that. It'd be the most popular breakfast spot in town. I'm not sure, but I would, <laughs> I would be a good waitress. Yeah. Okay. So moving forward, sure. where did you get your first master's at? Uh, Boulder. It was in social geography. Okay. So geography is the study of change over space. So if you think of history as the study of change over time, geography is the study of change over space. So a lot of people think about physical geography, mm -hmm. right? Geomorphology, GIS. 
And then there's a whole nother part of geography, which is the social part. So um, I was really interested. I did my thesis actually on teen birth rates that are wildly different between Fort Collins and Cheyenne. So what Mm. are the social, political, and economic factors behind that high variation in teenage birth rates? There's a couple of things in there that I think I maybe want to touch on. But first one is um, similar question. Like what made you choose social geography? Yeah, that's what they they asked me too when I interviewed to get a master's there. I said, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just interested in it. I remember Gary Gale was my eventually my professor and mentor. And he said, oh, we don't hear that often. Because <laughs> I think we'll admit you even though you don't have any geography background. I had taken a couple classes when I was in England at University of King's College uh, because geography is bigger in England. And he said, what kind of job do you want? And I said, I don't uh, think I'll probably ever work in this field. I just really would like to study this field. And he said, that's unusual. Okay, you're in. Education is a privilege and a luxury. And I've always tried to be very respectful of that. Again, I needed to really work hard. So I got a, I had a TA, a teaching assistantship, and I had a research assistantship. So three days a week, I would go to Boulder and do all that and my studies. And then Two days a week, I would go to Cheyenne, where I worked in a teen mom program, helping them get their GEDs. And then two nights a week, I was still waitressing here in Fort Collins. So I like to keep busy, but that was a good combination. And it was just a privilege to have that time in my life to study something I really was interested in. The thing that I would like to highlight, what I take from that, is that short answer of because I'm interested. And it is a luxury and a privilege to be able to go and do something that you are just purely interested in. but to actually follow through on that just for the um, passion of education and learning. You know, I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, I had to work for it. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, I just got this money from the sky, so I just could go do a master's. No, I, I, I paid for every penny. And again, I had to take some loans and I'd work two jobs, well, three jobs when I was doing it. So, yeah. Well, maybe the other thing that I wanted to touch on really quickly, but your thesis. What did you pull from that that you remember really well? So there are a lot of political factors behind that, right? There's a lot more access to health care for teen moms here. There's a lot more programs. The uh, incident of having a second child in Fort Collins was much lower than in Cheyenne. There's um, access to birth control, access to programs at your school. Sometimes it's just a cultural thing too. Way less sort of stigma, which could be kind of good, right? But also then... It can really, uh, the teen moms I worked with at the teen mom parenting program, once they had one child, they could really still enter the job market and be economically viable. The second child was the one that really held them back. And these were for single teen moms. Is there a reason, I guess, why you were interested in teen pregnancy rates? Uh, Well, I just, I was more, so that was just sort of the um, topic. The interest is really in how in a 60 mile radius can, can things be so different. Like, mm. what are the factors, right? We're so close. We share a similar geography, but really our our politics are, are very... It's, a, it's, it's very close, very similar, but it's two different states and two different cities. And That's right. So they, th- th- was this, a, after this was the Peace Corps? Right, right from there to the Peace Corps. So what was that experience like? It was interesting when my husband and I really think about doing, so we were 26, we're like, oh, it's two years. Because when you're in your age group, I know and my three kids are in your same age group. Two years seems like forever. And finally, I said, you know, because gosh, but if we went, we're 26, and two years would be 28. I said, in two years, we're going to be 28, whether we go to the Peace Corps or not. And I think that comment was the one that kind of rang the bell. It was like, yeah. 
Oh, the in switch. two years, we will have either done it or not. Right? So it does seem like a big chunk of time at your age. But those two years, not only do you learn more about yourself, and ironically, you learn more about your own country and your own culture because you're immersed in another one. But of course, you learn about the other cultures. So I learned to speak with some fluency Arabic and work in the Muslim culture at a girls' school. You know, I think you're already, again, predisposed to these types of things. So it's kind of self-reinforcing. But to be very cognizant of experiences of people of all races, religions, languages, and um, economic groups, right? You know, I'm considering doing it again when I'm in my 60s. Really? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Did, did you have a choice in Morocco? Did you choose to go to Morocco? Or was it, um, I'm not sure exactly the logistics on how. Well, Peace Corps organization is, I always say, it's kind of an oxymoron. So they said, are there any countries in the world that you don't want to go to? And we said, yes, we don't want to go to Tunisia or Morocco. We just thought that. That was on the list of do not want to go to. Yeah. So we said anywhere in the world except for. Mm -hmm. And our first assignment was to Tunisia. <laughs> and then when that one fell through, they sent us to Morocco. I said, well, okay. I guess we'll take it. <laughs> so, you know, then uh, the organization it, it was a challenge, but you have to look past that. That's also a good learning experience in your 20s. Oh, not everything goes smoothly. Oh, there's there's adults who don't who aren't that organized. You know, you can have all these re revelations. Like you grow up thinking, oh, these people are adults and I'm a child and I don't know, and they do. And then you get older and you're like, oh, no, that's not really yeah. <laughs> So basically, Peace Corps gave us a chance to live in another country for two years. Are you, are you thankful that it was, that it ended up being the two that were on the do not go to <laughs> yeah, list or yes. do you still look back and you're like, oh, I wish I would have gone to somewhere else or, or were yeah. you thankful that you, it ended up being those two places? Well, I think we put that down because we were afraid that as a Western woman, it would be harder for me to work, live and work in those countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was a prejudice I carried in, right? So I'm glad I was confronted with that. And I had to confront that. I was like, well, why did I say that? I was like, so my life would be easier? I mean, because uh, Peace Corps is not about me. I mean, so um, that, that turned out great. You seem to also have a very like optimistic and positive outlook on a lot of things. And I think that there's a lot of things I think that can happen in life that are completely out of your control. Like somebody, you saying, I, I don't want to go to Tunisia and Morocco. And then they say, okay, you're going to Tunisia and Morocco. <laughs> um, and so you say, I probably had okay. it coming, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, and then it's kind of like the idea of how do you react? How do you show up after that? That's exactly right, Tate. What are you going to do with that? Because you can turn it into an equally as good experience or better experience, depending on how you show up and how you react to it. Well, it's good for me, right? And and I and I use that, that lesson a lot now, when I'm mentoring or at the state house and things don't always go the way you would think they might. I counsel my colleagues down there. I said, okay, so now what are you going to do? Who are you going to be? What kind of legislator are you going to be? Are you going to be the vindictive, vengeful, angry one? Are you going to work with that? Or are you going to stand up to that? And that's a really cool learning of your own self. It's like, well, who am I? Why am I here? What's my motivation? And um, who do I represent? This is going to be a, maybe a side tangent, but I kind of like to go down into these like little side alleys, yeah, yeah. side alleys and then make our way back. Sure. Um, but as far as the knowing about yourself, as somebody who's in their like mid-20s or even like younger 20s, when I don't think I could have answered this question years ago, but it's kind of like, who are you? Should somebody in their 20s know exactly who they are? Oh, I hope not. Oh, no. And I share that opinion. I think that there's a combination of paying attention to something you're interested in and following that passion, that interest. You don't need to know. And I still don't know if I know myself fully. And I, I'm kind of, it's kind of a constant path of learning and changing. I know. Yeah, absolutely. And that, hopefully that won't change the rest of your life. How boring would it be if that just stopped? 
I said to one of my friends just two years ago, you know, people don't change. And he said, I don't, and I don't even know why I said that. He goes, of course they do. Are you the same person you were five years ago? I go, oh, of course I'm not. So that was a crazy thing for me to start off saying. But maybe what I was trying to get at is maybe some of our serious core values don't change, but we do change through our lives. And we do, we should. Um, and I, I think you had said a little earlier that there's a lot of pressure on your age group. And I, I felt that when I was your age too. So I don't know if it's more or less than it was then now, but I certainly believe it's true. And um, if I could do anything, I would wave my wand, my great big anxiety <laughs> duster and wipe away that, right? I would also wipe away the idea that people should do things for money. We all need resources to live. And those will come when you are fearless in following your passion. And we don't need as much as we think we do. And I think that once you can liberate yourself from those sorts of pressures and you'll get pressures from you know family and society and all sorts of pressures will say to be successful you need to own this or have that if you can liberate yourself from that notion i think it really sets you free i from my personal standpoint i think you are completely correct in that well it it, I, i was just reflecting too um there's some things I just won't do ethically or whatever in the workplace. And, and I, I'm not going to lie. It probably cost me some promotions on uh, those sorts of things. But I've always said I have some lines and I won't cross them. And um, I'd rather go be a waitress again than X, Y, or Z. But then you go, well, that's what it is. And if you're honest and sincere in that, then that's fine. And that's just a series of choices, right? I completely agree. So now we'll veer back maybe to the life path. So you were finished up with the Peace Corps. What happened after that? Then uh, we went to Purdue University and my husband did a PhD in ag economics there. And I did another master's because by then I had been teaching for two years in the Peace Corps and I really liked teaching. And then I realized that I really want to work with people with disadvantages. So I kind of didn't know how to put my finger on that. And finally, someone said, you want special education? And I was like, oh, you're right. Maybe I do. So I did a master's in special ed and a teaching certificate. And then I taught in the local high school there for two years. And I had one baby during all that. And then I had another baby. I had (laughs) Abby. Then I had Henry. And then my husband was done. He took a postdoc in Denmark. And that was a year and a half of my life where, as my mom says, you're going to be changing diapers wherever you are. I mean, you know, and I was happy to move to Denmark. It was a great place to have kids. Um, I was not working then. And that was great. I had the double running stroller, bike, buggy combo. (laughs) We went everywhere. And then I got pregnant with Mason there as well. So it was time to have a a family. And uh, yeah. Yeah, what better place to be than Denmark for having a bunch of young kids and... (laughs) So child-friendly. Yeah. While we were there, my husband's former mentor from Purdue called and said, you know, would you like to have a job back here at Purdue? And um, I, um, Purdue University is a wonderful place. Um, Central Indiana was not a good fit for me. (laughs) (laughs) So we sat down and we really talked about it. You know, where could Channing start his career as a professor? And it was, again, it was a great university. And it was an affordable place to live. And I said, okay, you know, I'll go back with the three kids. And uh, that afforded me the opportunity then to do my PhD. So because I had done my master's there, I, I was able to pick back up. And so that was a good time in our lives. I had enough time at home with the kids. And then I was also pursuing my professional interests. And he was starting his career in academics. So that was like about a 15-year stint of um, a combination of education, Peace Corps, teaching, family. Yep. That sounds like a pretty great 
I know. Time. I really strung it out forever. <laughs> we left Purdue in 2002 to move to Mozambique. Okay. And I graduated finally, like finally with my PhD. I wrote my dissertation in, in Mozambique. So I did that the first year and I graduated in 2004. So I really milked that whole time in my life <laughs> pretty, pretty well, right? And then my PhD advisor was great. She said, Jenny, I want to tell you one thing. I said, I know life is short and I'm old and, you know, I better get on the stick. And she goes, no, 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 no. Life is long and you're only 40. And then she said, she goes, so take your time. She said she started her professorship at Purdue when she was 60. And at that point she was 80. She goes, 20 years is enough in academics. It doesn't matter if you don't come back until you're 60. And then she looked at me right in the eye, and this is something I'm going to do to you right now. She goes, I'm expecting great things. And that eye-to-eye contact when someone says, I'm expecting great things. So when someone you know and trust as your mentor expects good things or great things, you tend to live up to it. And so um, I just did that trick on you. So there you go. I'm going to remember it. It's burned. I'm going to remember it Pass it on, too. So that was a good lesson for me. And I went back to Mozambique. I mean, I stayed and we left in 2008. And so I took the job that was available to me and which was a good one as at the American school there as the IB coordinator, we brought the IB to that school. So that was fun. And uh, my PhD was in curriculum instruction with emphasis on literacy and language. So implementing the IB there was great. And then I also served as the middle school principal where I think every kid has special needs in that age. So it was Perfect job for me. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, it sounds perfect. And so with all that really quickly, there's two things that I want to come back to. One is the idea of patience and um, the mentor that you said you have. Coming from someone in their 20s right now, you feel very rushed, but everybody's on their own path and um, and that life is long. So that, that was one thing that I kind of wanted to hit on, which I think is big is the patience. I think that's exactly right. I mean, life is long, right? Don't rush. And honestly, that time pressure is such a false one. It's just a false narrative that we have that you, and I hope the pandemic helped that a little bit. I hope that people think, well, if you're not a college graduate and you're 22, that's just the end of the world. I've always thought that was crazy, but I mean, I'm just told you before this interview, I'm thinking of going back to law school. Yeah. Oh, and then I did start my MBA up at CSU. I got halfway through and then I ran for office, so I couldn't finish. So maybe I should finish that first before law school. (laughs) I don't know which one comes first. So one other thing that I wanted to touch on from this this time period, it sounds like a lot of education, a lot of studying, um, but also some teaching. What is it about teaching that you enjoy? Is it is it maybe the because you enjoy studying so much that it's kind of a full circle? Yeah, it's all the same thing, right? It's, it's all pieces of a part. And, you know, you never, uh, I, I don't know if you've done some teaching too, and you never learn more than when you're teaching, right? And I just, I love school. I love everything about school. I like the social, academic, I like it all. And I think um, I like being in schools. I also like teaching in schools. I like the students, obviously. And I like students that have uh, challenges, difficulties. So my specialties were learning disabilities, mental handicaps, and then behavior disorders. So I ended up mostly with the students who had behavioral challenges and that, in my view, good spot to be in a school. And again, I just, I just like people. And so teaching is very, very satisfying because it's also mentoring and modeling and, and, and learning. And I don't know what, uh, what another job that would encompass all of those things that you enjoy into it so well. And honestly, I have to take my, my physical nature in, into account when I get jobs because I just, I don't, 
like to sit very much and I really I don't feel good when I'm sitting you should also pay attention to that side of yourself when you're thinking about careers so those that sounds dumb but I do think it's important to pay attention to those things no I I think it's very important and and you hit on something too that I I read a book called Dark Horse one of the first steps he says is to pay attention why what aspects of this do you like and how does that translate to maybe other jobs that would also have these aspects I think there's a lot of power in those like words, pay attention, especially when you're talking about yourself. I mean, I worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, well, I was an intern there in college for a congressman, but then I went back and worked for a year and I was so miserable. I worked in an office with fluorescent lights and I, I was just physically and personally miserable. Yeah. So it only lasted nine months. And then I rode my bike across the country to get, shake that off. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh. <laughs> Back on track now. Are you moving back to? So you, this is where you said you were teaching. We're in Mozambique. You're in Mozambique. That's for correct. Six okay, years. that's right. So with the family, and my husband was an advisor to the government. Uh, you were there for six years. Uh huh. Oh wow. Yeah. So the kids really had a long part of their childhood there. What was there a reason why Mozambique, or was it was their choice in choosing? Right. So my husband had a value of raising our kids partially in another country mm-hmm. somewhere. And we knew it'd be in the developing world because that's where when we moved home from Mozambique, my husband focused on um, developing countries, still does as an economist. And uh, all his work is international. He also is he's a very good quantitative economist. So he did a lot of work in poverty. And so mo- when we moved to Mozambique, it was the poorest country in the world. They had just survived a civil war and they were looking for uh, policy advisors in those areas. So we did it through Purdue University on loan from Purdue. So the choice was because um, it was a country that needed it the most. Yeah. And we knew it'd be some country like that. And so, yeah, we packed up our kids and they thought we were nuts. You know, you fly in and it's bombed out and the poverty is shocking. And they weren't in uh, central Indiana anymore. And then we we very intentionally wanted that for them. I would love to ask them about their perspectives. They would have various reviews, I'm sure. (laughs) So what were some key takeaways that you got from those six years and the work that you did and um, you and your husband and yeah, raising kids? Well, it's weird. So it was not like the Peace Corps because you had children with you. There is some risk, right? In situations that some would see as dangerous. I don't know, but some things did happen in Morocco that weren't safe. We were evacuated in the Gulf War and those things. So moving to Mozambique with children was a different level of responsibility that we had. So then we did live an expatriate lifestyle where the kids were at the American school, which was the only private school. And well, it wasn't the only one, but it was the best one. And it's easy to be critical of yourself. You're like, I was Peace Corps. I want to live like, you know, at a more basic level. And then you have to confront yourself with your privilege, your purpose, uh, your guilt. And all those things are very, um, they're real. So I said to one of our Danish counterparts, I was like, I just feel so guilty all the time when I live here. And they said, well, you, but you wouldn't be here if, if your kids couldn't have an education. So the Mozambique and public school, uh, the poverty was so much that they had each class had about 70 students and they would have three turns a day. So you, the kids were able to go to school for three hours and then they have to go home and then another group for three hours and another group for three hours. And so you have to confront all that. And it's very stressful, right? It's stressful in a lot of layers. And then you think, well, I am trying to do something here. I guess if I went home, it wouldn't help people anymore. Because I would just be home, right? It would be easier on me because I wouldn't be seeing it every day or confronting it. So you go through all of those things, right? And then you do the good you can while you're there. What's under your control? The more and more in life, I'm, I'm more into this, like, 
What can you do that's under your power? And where are you wasting maybe some time and energy on things you can't control? So, you know, I couldn't fix the poverty there, but I could treat the people who worked in our home very well and put water taps in and send them to school, send their kids to school and support them. And when we left, they both had great jobs and increased skills and those sorts of things. When you, when you focus on what you can control, you can have a larger impact for, at least as far as like maybe a ripple impact too. Um, because it sounds like what you did was helped these other families there and maybe them succeed at something that they care about and want to pursue. The, the other option is just to buckle under the weight of your own self-centered guilt, which might feel better, but doesn't help yeah, anybody. At that <laughs> point, it, you're like, oh, I don't have an option then. Right, right, <laughs> I have to right. Do this. So when my mom came home, someone said, well, how do you feel? She said, well, she said, I'll be honest. It's a relief not to see that level of poverty every day because it really hurts you. And then my husband said, yeah, but it doesn't make it go away. So there's all of that, right? But we need to confront that too. And then the irony is too, you have to ask yourself, there's so much need in our own communities. Why have I felt in my life that I need to put my time and energy in other communities? Ah, that's always another question. Yep. So when did you come back from Mozambique? So in 2008, it was time to come home. It was my husband who said, well, should we just move back to Fort Collins? Because by then he had switched from the university to the United Nations and he was going to be traveling all over the world all the time. And I had gotten a job. Now it's kind of cool, but before it wasn't, trust me. Um, and this is another lesson I, I don't know. I've learned and take what you get sometimes and make the most of it. So there I was with a PhD from a good university, and I wanted to get a job as a professor like you would. So I, what was available to me was an online university. And then that was the bottom of the barrel. And I said, well, okay, because I am a wife, I am a mother, and I am in Mozambique, so what can I do? And I was still working at the school. So I would, you know, another theme is I always have a couple side hustles going, right? Yep, that is a theme. (laughs) So I took a job teaching at Walden University in their special ed and literacy programs. But that provided me an unforeseen opportunity to start the first online teacher prep program in special ed and literacy and we took that all the way up. We were the first online program to be nationally accredited. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes you take something, and I was kind of ashamed and embarrassed, and all my colleagues from Purdue were all teaching at, you know, Rutgers or wherever they went to. And I was like, I work at Walden. They're like, what? And there was an opportunity to build something there. So I could work online, and my husband was going to travel. He said, let's move back to Fort Collins so you can be near your mom. And I jumped at the chance to come home, even though none of the kids have been raised here. Mm-hmm. So it was new to them, but... To you, it was home. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that that, as far as um, what you said about certain doors opening after making some decisions, I mean, it makes me think about the, the movie Yes Man, where um, like Jim Carrey can't say no to things and he says yes. And then that ends up opening all these other doors and opportunities. And I think that that's very true to life, that um, sometimes if you just say yes to an opportunity... You're going to laugh. So there it was, right? All PhD'd up and ready to go and in Mozambique. And I said to my husband... I'm going to play a five-year game of yes based on that. And that I promise you. On- yep. And uh, he goes, what is that? He goes, oh, no. And I go, I'm going to take the first job I get. And for five years, I'm going to say yes to every single thing they ask me to do, no matter what. He goes, oh, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so I got the job at Walden. And then they said, you know, will you teach this? Yep. Oh, we just had a teacher get sick. Can you cover? Yep. And I just started honestly, honestly, very intentionally said, oh, I'm going to say yes for five years and see what happens. And Tate, I recommend it because now I'm starting to learn to 
to have to say no. And that's a little <laughs> that's hard, hard for me. That's really yeah. hard for me. But that was so interesting. So I didn't know, but they had like 3,000 adjunct faculty. Some crazy number. And honestly, I got the reputation of like, well, ask that one lady. She'll, she must, she'll yes. do it. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time I moved back here, it was within three months they offered me a full-time job as the first field director for these programs. So I flew to the HQ in Minneapolis and uh, it was on, I, online, it was early, you know, and uh, they said, oh, hey, hey, and everybody in the office knew me. I said, why, how do you guys know me? I'm just one of like 3,000. And they go, oh, and a secretary pulled out her little thing from under her desk. She said, I keep a list of five people who will do anything in this, in this university and your name is right there. I was like, oh my gosh. And then when I got that job, I had two direct reports and these poor young women, Jennifer and Kate, I, I said, well, here's the problem for you guys. And they said, what? And I said, I'm in about two and a half years into a real life game of yes. And they were like, oh no, what does that mean? <laughs> I said, well, now you guys are in because our office, our field office will be at this university, the office that does everything, that says yes to everything. They're like, what if we can't handle it? I go, nope, you say yes. We'll figure it out. They're like, we just got the craziest boss in the world. <laughs> and we just said yes to everything. And it was a great experience. I think it's really cool that you in, really intentionally said, I'm going to say yes to every opportunity, every request. At work, yeah. Yeah, at work. That, that comes my way and just see what happens. Like, see how it plays out. For five years. And yeah. then I ended up the program director. And then we took it to national accreditation. And then I started my MBA because I got a little bored at work. I was like, I need something to do at night. And then they found out about that. And then they moved me to the business office where I was head of all the business. I worked back with the university as the head of the business for all the programs, all the budgeting and marketing, because I kept saying yes. It's just, that's just an awesome it was segment crazy. of your story. It's really funny. I, I really don't talk love. about that very much. But um, when you brought up that movie, I was just smiling like, oh, that's what I did. And, yeah. then, and then on August 16th, was it 2010? I was like, oh, yes, game's over. And what am I going to do now? So we're, we're catching up. We're getting close now. Getting so close. over the last like 10 years, um, and I know you've, you've been in, which you, you commented on it earlier, as far as when you're in Mozambique and you're working on this community, and then you also have um, your home community. And it's kind of like having to decide where you want to make an impact because it's really hard to make an impact everywhere. So is this kind of where you decided to start to make your impact in the Fort Collins community? Not intentionally. I mean, I moved back and I hadn't realized that, my, you know, the people I grew up with in terms of my mentors, Bob Bacon then became our state senator and state representative and school board. And my eighth grade teacher, Nancy Telez, has been on school board. And, you know, these the people who are active and involved were just active and involved. And when I moved back, and I had been on two school boards too before. So I've always been active in the community in other ways as well. I'm not, not overtly political, but, you know, you do kind of run for these things. And it's a service. So they, they started asking me to run for office. And I thought they were crazy. And I said, no, like that Gilligan's Island, like you can't make me, you can't make me. But um, <laughs> when you really understand that running for elected office is an extension of what you're doing anyway in terms of public service, it's just another form of it. And that it can be what you want to make it in that way. As I was saying, I'm trying to make politicians cool again. <laughs> I haven't really succeeded, but I'm going to keep trying. Because I don't shy away from that word politician because that just means someone of the people. I was, I was going to ask you what, what politics means to you. And so I think that 
I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let you keep going. But. I always shock people. They say, what do you do? I say, I'm a politician. They go, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm like, no, yeah, it's cool. It's okay. Politician is of the people, a servant of the people. So eventually then I did lots of sort of things happened. I did quit my job in 2013 to run for state rep. And it was a good time for a new learning. So I sort of adopted the water as a complex, nonpartisan, sort of gnarly issue that I kind of really like to sink my teeth into. So I did. I just started reading law books on water and then going a lot of field trips and self-educating because I've done it so much that now I don't really need a professor or anybody giving me a reading list. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know how to go find I it. I know how to do it. Yeah. And then I was successful in that election, 14, 16, 18, 20. But time flies. Time, <laughs> time does fly. And then about a year and a half ago, people started asking me if I would consider running for mayor. I had the same reaction. I was like, no, why am I not the state rep? Why don't I run for mayor? What, 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 why do you want me to be mayor? And then more people, and then you start seeing a coalition building, and you think, well, I wonder if that is a good place to serve my community in another way. The idea of a politician being a civil servant, I love that definition. And I, I do think that a lot of people agree that like the word politician has like this negative connotation <laughs> it to does. it. I, so I think that that's really cool that you take it on, you embrace it. And then I, I, I've, I've maybe... One question, and I hope it'll kind of, and I kind of have some branches that maybe it'll turn into, but like the overarching question is what would success look like as far as what you can do for a local community in the role as mayor? That's a great question. Honestly, I think it's about connecting people within the community in all ways, right? Socially, economically, this role is nonpartisan, so politically, like get over it. We're going to solve problems here. And then continuing to build, because I think Fort Collins is like this, a really kind community where we care about each other, where we're connected in our neighborhoods and we're connected by bike paths, smart streets, through jobs and employment. So that sense of place, community and connectedness, if we can, I would say continue that because I think we have that. I don't ever like to speak very much in terms of things that I'm against. I really emphasize on what I'm for, but I really will be a very strong advocate of a pragmatic town that's for every single person and uh, infrastructure that works for everyone. So I have the disability lens, right? Very inclusive to the community that has mobility issues. So we want everybody to be mobile and active and participant and connected. And so that means transit, that means bike lanes, that means all sorts of things like Mm -hmm. that. It kind of branches from that core idea of value that you asked me about we branch out into city services. I think the next 20 years, we're going to transition to being a a small, big town. We're going to grow the size of Boulder inside Fort Collins. We're project, we're at about 170, 172. We're going to, our build out, I think is 250. That's a lot of growth. So how do we build neighborhoods? How do we give different nodes throughout the city, right? We love Old Town, but we can't just have only Old Town and then a bunch of houses around Old Town, right? We want to have neighborhood communities that that have their own services, right? So we're not driving five miles for milk all the time. People love, I live in Old Town, people love it here because we have Beaver's Market, right? So you get your milk over there and you can go to a little restaurant. So we have mixed-use neighborhoods, not just residential, not just commercial, right? We have to stop thinking in pockets like that. We segregate ourselves socioeconomically too, which I think is a dangerous thing. Because if we don't live and work beside people who are different from us, we won't be connected. 
we could easily live in our in our little safe neighborhood wherever yeah. it is and and you know those sorts of things so i think we really need to have mixed use housing we need to have seniors able to age in place but not just with other seniors in Denmark, we lived in a, there was, we had a building and then it was split in the middle and we had the townhome, the big one, cause we had two kids. And then on the bottom floor, um, next to us, a half of the other side of the building was the seniors and they had the handicap accessible and everything. And then on top of that was the, the single mom with two kids. I was the only one with the car, so I did groceries for all of us. <laughs> but when I was doing groceries, the seniors were looking after Abby and Henry, chasing them around at the park, laughing, having a good time. And then the mom, when she went out on dates, we would look after her kids on date nights. Everybody's watching a movie at our house. That was the best living arrangement I ever had. Wow. And to me, that was integrated. The seniors were aging where they wanted to, but also in a mix of people. We had a central park in the neighborhood, so we'd all go out about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and hang around. Parents might have a beer. The kids would be playing. We all knew each other. We had, like, a shared community garden, and we had shared chickens. Now, because it was Denmark, we even had a shared laundry room. So we didn't have our own individual um, washers and dryers. I don't see that happening in America. We we love all. I don't know why we all have a lawnmower. We all have a, you yep. know, that we use once a week. Yep. <laughs> I think eventually maybe we get away from that, but until then. But I have seen neighbors, like in our neighborhood. We will put out a call in our neighborhood. We have a texting change, you know. Hey, does somebody have that lawnmower I could borrow? Yeah. You know, why, why are we all buying our own individual appliances and living in our, yeah. So those are some more Jenny ideas, but probably not all of them coming true. <laughs> but so sort of thinking like that. The two points that you kind of, hit on that i i mean you we said it earlier as far as control city of fort collins is going to grow and that's outside of your control and it's kind of like how do you react how do you show up to keep that sense of community in the city right so i think that was really cool that um you addressed the even the control aspect and then the these mixed use of in the house that you said in denmark that seems so ideal for all parties for the elderly, for like the kids, for the moms. It just sounds, I mean, it's kind of like the no brain where it's like, why don't we have that? Why? <laughs> we isolate ourselves in these big houses with these big yards that use too much water. And uh, we don't live sustainably, although we talk about it a lot. I mean, I think all of your ideas are more than reasonable. Uh, from my perspective, I'm like, that's more than reasonable. And that seems like. Yeah. I mean, we love Amsterdam and they all live right next to each other, right? Yeah. But if we want open space, public open space, and I think we do, we are going to have to give up some private open space and we need to live closer and we need to plan for that so that we can then still maintain our public open space, right? Yeah, there'll be a time of transition and some discomfort, I know, but I think that we're moving and I also see that in the your eyes and my kids that 20 somethings, you know, our kids, they don't necessarily want a car. I think urban planning is a really good career path. If I might say so, Tate, it's a really dynamic. It's really fascinating. And it's also has to do with all the things you've been mentioning that you like social people. And so how are people going to live in a community and share scarce resources, land, water, air? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. You can work until you can't feel like you can't work anymore. And no matter like what that work is, whether right. that's a salary work or like whether it's just a service in the community. Um, the mentoring. Mentoring, yeah. Right. There's always a role that like people can play. And I think when we separate these communities, you lose that. You lose it. And there's also a role to be played in being the one who's 
being taken care of. My mom's entering the time when she needs me more. And I get the privilege to take care of her the way she took care of me. We need to honor and respect and care for our elders better in our country. The other thing, um, at, I've always felt this segregation thing is, is, is dangerous, I think. Um, and at the Capitol, I always advocated that we would sit, I sit on the Republican side, I'm a Democrat. But I always thought we should go every other chair. Because when you sit next to someone, you know when their kids are sick and you share all your stories and you don't still don't share votes, but you share humanity. And so I was talking to League of Women Voters about this and they started an initiative called Change Your Chair. So we can spark these initiatives by talking and thinking about how we connect. And I know it sounds really trite, but you look at how many times we separate. And if you go through, go through your day with that lens and it'll, it'll surprise you. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just that people don't do it. Yeah. I also pushed at the Capitol to get a common eating room. And it was so incredible. Both parties said no. I said, what? There's a separated eating room? Yeah. When we go to eat, Democrats see in one place. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. That's not conducive to conviviality yeah so i would go eat with republicans a lot they don't care i was like hey i'm coming in what do you guys got for dinner so when i left my spot at the capitol i was chair of ag and um the speaker said who do you think should be the next chair of ag and i said well i think it should be mark catlin he's republican and the speaker said what and they said look here's why and i went through all the reasons why but he did something that's unprecedented in colorado politics is he named him vice chair and so you just plan a seat, right? And here's the reason why. Because what Speaker Garnett did, we could honor the voice of the Republican rural people and not give up the power of the majority, which is what the people is very important. Well, the people have spoken that they want a majority Democrat. So you didn't give up any of that power. You're honoring the will of the voters, but you're also acknowledging the role. When I told Mark, he just he couldn't believe it. I mean, it's never happened before in, pol- in Colorado politics. And it's such a simple thing to do that, I mean, it was in the Denver Post. It was all over. I was like, really? Wow, well, I'm glad that made everyone very happy. It seemed like a no-brainer to me. Something that's so different to what's typical. And again, it's... Just changing your viewpoint a little bit. Go back to this theme of connecting. We're connected to our rural cousins. We are connected as a state, you know, and as a country. So... I think when we did a little pre-talk, I thought, I'm 56, I kind of know how I want to spend the rest of my life, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to dedicate it to those ideas. I was asked to be on this thing called Healthier Democracies, so it's an advisory board of 10 from across the country. And I said, why did you invite me? And they said, oh, yeah, we know about you, because I did a lot of work through the National Institute of Civil Discourse as well. So these things, and then they snowball, right? So it, you, you show an interest, you have an idea, you intentionally sit with Republicans, you do, and then people notice, and you're like, you guys notice? And then this national group, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they're like, no, yeah, we, we know who you are. I'm like, How do you know that? Like, well, we've heard of some of the things you've done, and so like, oh. So do what you do and take the actions you think are right, even if they're really small. And it's quite remarkable that sometimes people are paying attention. Because I, I know that we touched on it really quickly, and I think that that's really cool that you know for the rest of your life that this is what you want to do. It's a theme. So yeah. I'll do other things around it, but that'll yep, be yep. my theme. But, yeah. yeah, there's like the one theme, and then, but you won't stray too far off from pursuing this passion. Oh, no. Everything will be based around that. Based thing. around this. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's a, a culmination of all of your experiences through life, 
that have kind of built up and led to this point where you now can confidently say, this is the direction I'm heading and I feel really good about it. So thank you so much for sitting down with me because I think like I love to hear your viewpoints on everything politically related. And then I love to also hear your story about all your education and your travel. It's really cool for me to at least hear this entire story. Well, thank you, Tate. You don't often get to tell your story like in an hour or two. So it's, it's, it sounds like a lot when it's all in a short time. But it really just is the day to day. Yeah. And also congrats on becoming mayor. That's my hat. That's, your- That's my hat. <laughs> I love it. (laughs) And thank you for the interview. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck on everything moving forward. And I hope to check in. Okay. Check check in. (laughs) Every now and then. Yeah. Come back. Look into city planning. I'm so happy I was able to sit down and hear Jenny's story because although she's a family friend, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten to know her story so well had I not had her on the podcast. Her passions are clear and her story is nothing short of inspirational. By paying attention and pursuing her interests, she was able to earn a wide range of degrees, travel the world, all while serving others at the same time. Some of my favorite things about Jenny are her positive attitudes in life, her relentless work ethic, her values to help and serve others in areas of need, and her wisdom in her approach to it all. Study a subject you're interested in, even if you know it won't be your career. Earn a reputation as someone that will say yes to any challenge and get it done, because it will open doors later down the road that you're unaware of in the moment. Pay attention to the things that make you happy, like working on your feet and socializing. Know what's in your control and what's not, and understand that how you respond is far more important. Encourage mixed seating in a politically segregated room to bring people together. And be patient and intentional with your life because some great people are expecting you to do great things. At the end of the day, you should be thankful if you happen to have the happy gene like Jenny. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Our next episode will be released on Wednesday, February 23rd. So follow us on Instagram at gd4gd.passionproject for more updates and information as the season continues. I also want to take this time to give a shout out to GD4GD, the brand that makes all this possible. GD4GD is a lifestyle brand that works with nonprofits, artists, musicians, and more to create clothing and donate money at the same time. They donate $10 of every sale to a nonprofit, which is currently Respite Care. Respite Care is a nonprofit organization in Larimer County that provides short-term quality care for children with developmental disabilities and respite to their families, enabling them to enhance the quality of their life. Check out GD4GD on Instagram or go to gd4gd.com to get their gear and support some great nonprofits. Lastly, instead of doing ad reads for this podcast, I'd rather take some time at the end of each episode and give shout outs to some for-profit companies that I love to support. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to Siblings. Siblings makes eco-friendly premium candles that you make at home. They supply the wax, the wick, and the directions on how to make your candle using any container you'd like. Siblings is on a mission to tackle throwaway culture, and their first step is doing candles right. Right by the environment, right by your home, and right by your health. Most candles are mass-produced with paraffin, a byproduct of petroleum. And most tumblers never get reused or recycled and contribute to a landfill. With Siblings, the wax used is eco-friendly, 
using a 100% natural blend of coconut and soy wax. Siblings also uses 100% compostable packaging. Go check them out at siblings.co. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny Arndt and feel more motivated than you did at the beginning of this episode to take some action on something you're passionate about. We'll see you in a couple weeks.